Hello, it's John Dennis on Tuesday the 23rd of March. Today, the former Cabinet Minister Stephen Byers has referred himself to the parliamentary sleaze watchdog over lobbying claims. At the moment, my sort of scale is between three and 5,000 a day. And the three to five just depends a bit on, on the work, the clients. Yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes I can charge more. Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee gives her view. It's a very serious matter, I think, for all of Labour because it reflects so badly, not just on the present and the coming election, but it reflects badly on their past. Also today, the man charged with reforming the system of MPs' expenses says members will be punished if they don't comply with these new rules. He's told us that he will come down on MPs who breach the new rules like a tonne of bricks and he talks about fines and docking pay for MPs who break the new rules. In America, healthcare reformers celebrate an historic victory. This legislation will not fix everything that ails our healthcare system, but it moves us decisively in the right direction. This is what change looks like. The former CBI Director General and ex-minister Digby Jones tells Guardian Daily that the BA dispute raises fundamental issues about the right of managers to run a business. The British passenger has to actually have the right to say, well, there's an airline there and there's a management. And the management have to get on with producing an airline. And Olympic organisers fired the starting gun on the scramble for tickets to the London 2012 Games. I understand that the lowest price band will probably be around £20 or just below £20. I think the big question will obviously be, will people be able to get affordable tickets to see you know, the big event, say the 100 metres final? Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story. The Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards is investigating Stephen Byers, the Blairite former Transport Minister. He was secretly filmed by journalists from the Sunday Times and Channel 4's Dispatches programme posing as lobbyists. Here, he describes himself as being like a cab for hire. I'm a bit like a sort of cab for hire, I suppose, at the moment. Just in terms of um, money, what would you, be, what would you expect um, to be involved with an advisory board? Well, I, I, at the moment, my sort of scale is between, it varies, but it's, it's usually between three and 5,000 a day. Mm. That's the sort of... Okay. Way. And the three to five just depends a bit on, on the work, um, the clients. Yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes I can charge more. Two other former ministers, Jeff Hoon and Patricia Hewitt, were also caught in the sting. Columnist Polly Toynbee gives her reaction. It's a very serious matter, I think, for all of Labour because it reflects so badly, not just on the present and the coming election, but it reflects badly on their past, as does Tony Blair's own uh, doings since he left power, that if you go off and make huge amounts of money cashing in on your previous office, it shines a light back on what you did before. I don't think he went to war in order to get his hands on Iraqi oil, but that question will always hang over Tony Blair now that he's accepted outrageously a South Korean contractor deal for which concerns Iraqi oil. What are we to read into the fact that uh, some of the MPs, former ministers, uh, caught up in this um, trap by the uh, Sunday Times and Channel 4's dispatches are key Blairites? 
I think it's very significant that they're Blairites. Blair and Mandelson were the two people who were always the supremely, intensely relaxed about the filthy rich. They were always people who were happy rubbing shoulders with the rich, much to the puzzlement of Labour people who couldn't really understand why. What's the fun of spending your time with rich Tories uh, on holiday? And I think that it rubbed off uh, the idea that, you know, there's no, there's nothing incompatible about being a Labour person and liking moneyed people, even though most moneyed people are Tories. And I think inevitably that attitude rubbed off on their supporters. Someone like Patricia Hewitt, extremely hardworking, civil liberties person all her life. It doesn't fit the rest of her profile, her time with Neil Kinnock. But something contaminated seemed to happen to some of those people who were closest to Blair. We've had weeks of headlines about the tax status of the Tories' Lord Ashcroft. Now the spotlight's on Labour's alleged impropriety. Um, how successful do you think the Conservatives might be in turning Labour sleaze into an election issue? I think it's quite difficult for the Conservatives in a way because they are themselves already so stinking rich, rolling in money. And also a lot of them and their people have had these kinds of jobs themselves. It's much more... Uh, is much more damaging for Labour, though, than it is for the Conservatives, because people don't expect Labour to be like that. But if you have a whole lot of Labour people, particularly this lot, who have themselves so often advocated bringing commerce into the public sector, then going off and making lots of money out of those very firms that are profiting from uh, the public sector, it really stinks, and it upsets Labour people out there toiling door-to-door, no end in an election period. And part of Labour's response to this has been to uh, include a promise in their manifesto to have a, um, a statutory register of lobbyists. I mean, of course, obviously shutting the uh, stable door after the horse has bolted, maybe. But do you think that that might stop future problems such as this arising? Well, every little bit helps, as uh, <laughs> buyers might say, working for Tesco's. Um, but I think not really. I mean, I think you've got to do these things every time. But in the end, it comes down to principles. And I think if Blair had been a different person, if he'd stamped his foot right from the beginning and said, I'm not having any of this, I'm having no cross-contamination, they have to suck up to rich people to get money not for their own pockets, but for their party. And in the process, the sort of attitude that getting money out of rich people is OK maybe rubs off on them in some way. Uh, they, of course, should have cleaned up policy politics and have had a, a state-financed political system right from the start. Um, Byers, Hoon and Hewitt, uh, as we've said, um, enemies of Gordon Brown, but uh, the Prime Minister won't be a happy man today, will he? He won't be happy. It's very, very damaging and uh, it's very hard for them to know quite how to deal with it. At least nobody for one minute thinks that Gordon Brown has ever been remotely interested himself in money. He has kowtowed to the rich in disgraceful ways and allowed them to get away with tax loopholes with one of the lowest top tax rates until now. But that was because he wanted money for the Treasury. Nobody for a moment ever thought he was remotely interested in money for himself. People know that Cameron's very wealthy and his wife's even wealthier and Osborne is very wealthy. So it's a little bit tricky for them to know quite how to capitalise on this. It's uh, Labour people who had no money themselves, who came into office, lived the gilded life and then somehow felt they were entitled to go on living that way. Not a problem for the Tories because when they give up office, they'll go on being rich afterwards. 
Polly Toynbee. Well, from lobbying to expenses now. Sir Ian Kennedy is chair of the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority. It's his job to draw up a new system of MPs' expenses that'll restore trust in our politicians. I asked Whitehall correspondent Polly Curtis what he's going to propose. We're going to learn all the details on Monday, but what we know is that he's going to have this system of kind of public scrutiny. So everything that MPs claim for, everything they dispute, every correspondence is going to be published online. So you'll be able to go and really comb through your, what your MP is, is spending the money on. And he today, he's, he's told us that he will come down on MPs who breach the new rules like a ton of bricks. And he talks about fines and docking pay for MPs who break the new rules and this is all dependent on um, a new compliance officer post um, that's currently going through Parliament at the moment but this this position which um, will be attached to IPSA the Independent Parliamentary Standards Watchdog will um, who will have these powers to really enforce the rules. And how will members of the public, voters, how can we best judge whether these reforms will work? We can't We can't at the moment because we've still not seen all the details which will come on Monday. But it, it will be how much we're able to hold MPs to account. So there'll be the fact that you'll be able to go online and look up exactly what they're doing. Um, and it will be the f- how that kind of then shapes MPs' behaviour. Will they, will they stop breaking the rules, basically? Polly Curtis, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on the website today. I'm Jessica Shepherd, and tomorrow on Education Guardian, 83% of parents struggle to help their children with their homework, even when those children are 9 to 13 years old. And a third of secondary schools in England give their pupils biased and incomplete careers advice, leading them to make the wrong choices about their futures. And in the education supplement, Will Self vows to brush up on his French so that he can be interviewed on TV in the language in six months' time. And in an investigation into why so few further education colleges have active student unions. All that on educationguardian.co.uk. The organisers of the London 2012 Olympics have begun the process of allocating tickets for the biggest sporting event ever held in Britain. Owen Gibson, our sports news correspondent, explains how it'll work. This was their big ticketing announcement where they basically unveiled the, the website on which you should now go and register if you're interested in buying tickets for the uh, for the Olympics, but they won't actually go on sale until spring next year, so you've got a long wait, but in between they'll be um, they'll be marketing, they'll be trying to build this database basically and, and expecting people who are fans of particular sports to sign up, people who are interested in particular events to sign up, and then when they do finally go on sale, they say they'll be able to offer you the best and most relevant tickets to you. I've just um, signed up on tickets.com london2012.com myself just before uh, coming in here to talk to you Owen and uh, I mean does, is it simply that we'll just get an email when the tickets go on sale or, or do we actually get any more preferential treatment than that that's basically going to be it I mean you, <laughs> you won't you won't be any you won't be ahead of anyone else in the Damn. queue but what you, I think be, between now and then there'll be a steady sort of 
drip drip of kind of email marketing they'll be looking to build up a, a relationship with you if you like and they'll be and they'll be sort of advising people who want tickets for particular sports how to best go about getting them if you like because obviously there'll be various tactics for people who want to see whether you want maybe some people will want to simply go and experience the the games and they don't mind too much which which events they see some people will be big uh, handball enthusiasts or whatever and they'll be absolutely dead keen on getting those particular tickets so it'll be about kind of working out where the peaks in demand are going to be where demand might be a bit softer and and how to basically ensure that everybody gets at least to see some of the events they want to see now uh, the staging of these games has been paid for to a certain extent with british taxes and particularly Londoners are we going to get preferential treatment at all well no and this might be one of the controversies between now and the games I guess as you say um, every every Londoner's uh, council tax goes towards the Olympics and 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 further to that obviously everyone in the country pays for it through their um, through general taxation so the fact that um, these tickets will be available to anyone in the EU as they have to be under EU law might be a cause for some um, vexation I would imagine in some quarters but Paul Dighton who's the um, local chief executive was was very careful to try and stress today that they will be sort of exclusively marketed at least to to those in in Britain and he expects the vast majority of them to end up with uh, British applicants purely because they'll be the ones who who make the most applications if you like. Do we know how much tickets are going to cost? Well that's the um, that's the big question and it's the one to which they haven't given an answer yet they're saying later this year they're going to unveil the pricing strategy I understand that the lowest price band will probably be around £20 or just below £20, um, which is which is very affordable. Um, they've made a promise to make, quote-unquote, millions of tickets available at affordable prices. So they'll definitely be held to that. I think the big question will obviously be, will people be able to get affordable tickets to see you know, the big events, so the 100 metres final, or, or big days in the main stadium, rather than just um, cheap tickets to watch handball or archery? Owen Gibson. My name's John Dennis, you're listening to Guardian Daily. In America, the vote for healthcare reforms was hailed by the President as a victory for the American people. Now, as momentous as this day is, it's not the end of this journey. On Tuesday, the Senate will take up revisions to this legislation that the House has embraced. And these are revisions that have strengthened this law and removed provisions that had no place in it. Some have predicted another siege of parliamentary maneuvering in order to delay adoption of these improvements. I hope that's not the case. It's time to bring this debate to a close and bring in the hard work of implementing this reform properly on behalf of the American people. In the end, what this day represents is another stone firmly laid in the foundation of the American dream. Tonight, we answered the call of history as so many generations of Americans have before us. When faced with crisis, we did not shrink from our challenge. We overcame it. We did not avoid our responsibility. We embraced it. We did not fear our future. We shaped it. Well, it was certainly a victory for Barack Obama. The vote caused outrage among right-wing commentators on conservative talk radio stations. Tonight, we answered the call of history as so many generations... Stupak is no different than Neville Chamberlain. Came back with that little letter from Hitler. Oh, yeah, Hitler says... The 250, how are we going to get that back? Is that a rebate check or is that on your taxes or what? Statute. So whatever's in the Senate bill, and there is federal funding for abortion, the bill, and uh, folks make no question the lies that we have been told... When rationing begins... 
depending on what illness or disease you have or contract, you may well not get health care. We need to defeat these bastards. We need to wipe them out. We need to chase them out of town. But we need to do more than that. We need to elect conservatives. Well, as conservatives seethed, liberals celebrated. Jackie Schechner is from the pressure group Healthcare for America Now. Once this uh, goes into effect and there are some immediate benefits, the people will realize that healthcare reform is a good thing and all of the scare tactics and lies and misleading information uh, was just that. When a lot of the, the scare uh, elements of, of the advertising campaigns that, that went on uh, don't come true, people will recognize that this was a good thing. Now, it's not quite universal health care. Who's going to be exempt from this? And do you think that uh, the fact that there are these exemptions uh, is going to be a problem? No, I don't. I mean, I think it's a, a very small percentage. Uh, there are some people who are not subject to the requirement or penalty, and among those would be people with an income below the filing threshold, uh, religious objectors, undocumented workers or undocumented uh, people, incarcerated people, members of Indian tribes, uh, those who have a coverage gap of less than three months. Sometimes people will get a hardship waiver from the secretary, uh, and then there'll be some who can't afford coverage. That means that if the available insurance to them would cost more than 8% of their income. But all of that said, uh, what will happen over time is we will work very hard to continue to improve on this legislation. And I think people need to remember that what, what we just passed or what will pass hopefully by the end of this week in its entirety is by no means the be-all and end-all of health care reform. Uh, you know, we think about Medicare or Social Security or even civil rights legislation that was improved over time. And this is a, a very large first step and we will continue to make improvements as the years go on. Jackie Schechner from Healthcare for America Now. Well, Ewan McCaskill is in our Washington office. Ewan, how has this historic vote changed the political landscape? The Democrats think that health reform is going to be a winner for them and come the November congressional elections that you know, once people become aware of what the health bill entails, then they will come to like it. The Republicans are banking on the public not changing their mind that come November, they will still think it's a stinker and it's going to cost the Democrats votes. Can, can you sort of lay out for us how Obama succeeded in achieving this incredible goal, really, that's eluded so many of his predecessors? Well, he started, uh, when he became president, he had a lot of political capital, a lot of goodwill. And he's basically used up an awful lot of it to achieve this um, bill. Uh, he stuck with it. I mean, there's a few times, I think, uh, you know, towards the end of last year, and certainly after the Republican victory in Massachusetts in January, it looked as if this bill might never see the light of day. Uh, but he, he decided that if he didn't get it, his presidency was going to be a failure. It was his biggest campaign promise. And if he didn't deliver on it, uh, basically people would say he's a sort of do-nothing president. Uh, he's a thinker. He's too aloof and doesn't get things done because he hasn't achieved anything on, say, Guantanamo. Uh, he hasn't done much on foreign policy, nothing that you can point to of significance on domestic. So it, it was starting to look pretty bad for him. He had to get this bill through. Uh, so he worked the Democrats in uh, the Senate and the House. He pushed them, called in lots of favours. It was tighter than the final figure suggested. They said 219 to 212. But it came down to the, it was only a few hours before the vote. It was still in the balance. It does change something fundamental about American society, though, this, doesn't it? It, 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 mean, it means that America is now progressive uh, in a way that a lot of other industrialised countries are. Yes and no. Um, they've moved a long way towards a sort of universal healthcare system. 
Um, and the Americans like to slag off the uh, European and the British model and the Canadian model. Um, but I mean, I'd be a lot happier being sick in uh, Europe than I would in America, even with this uh, reform. There's lots of compromises in this bill. There's still you know, quite a large part of the population uh, left out of it. And uh, some of the provisions are you know, pretty sparse. But having said that, there is a fundamental change. Before, it was all sort of piecemeal, a sort of patchwork of uh, provision, depending what state you're in, you know, what kind of insurance policy you had. And now we've got something a bit more coherent. Ewan McCaskill. BA cabin crews returned to work today, but they're planning another walkout. This time, a four-day strike due to start on Saturday. And it'll go ahead unless BA shows willingness to talk, according to Tony Woodley, the Joint General Secretary of the Unite Trade Union. Well, Lord Jones is a former trade minister under Gordon Brown, and as Digby Jones, he's the former Director General of the CBI. And he says the dispute goes to the heart of industrial relations in the UK. What's very important for people to understand is this is the last vestiges of nationalised industry union relations. This isn't a private sector dispute. In fact, the unions in connection with the private sector in Britain have been fabulously responsible all through this recession. They've put up with a lot. They've uh, negotiated on behalf of their members to ensure that jobs have been maintained and skills base has also been maintained. Indeed, I marched for the first time in my life, actually, I marched with the Unite Union last May to try and persuade the government to keep skilled people in work in the manufacturing aspects of the British economy. So this is not about unions generally. This is not about the cabin crew at British Airways. In fact, I think the cabin crew in BA, and I fly such a lot. I fly British Airways a lot. I fly other airlines a lot. I have to say the cabin crew at BA are some of the best in the world and they're decent people. But this is about who can have the right to manage. British Airways operates in a globalised environment. And what you have is every other airline in the Western world operating with cabin crew who are on less money. And BA is sitting there saying, we just can't go on like this, we're going to go bust. If you look at some of the working practices, some of the Spanish practices that go on in British Airways, they're worthy of the miners, the printers, the dockers, all of those 1970s awful examples of union abuse. Well, they're prevalent and they're working today in BA, and it's got to stop. Now, that doesn't mean having crew at BA are bad people. It doesn't mean that unions don't have the right to stand up and fight for their people. Of course they do. But at the end of the day, the British passenger has to actually have the right to say, well, there's an airline there and there's a management. And the management have to get on with producing an airline. And I'm so proud of the fact that the Union flag is on the tail plane of a British Airways plane. You have no idea what damage this is doing to the reputation of Britain, brand Britain, under which so many companies and businesses operate and generate profit, the profit on which they pay UK tax, which means they build schools and hospitals in Britain, they create employment in Britain. And if this is the last vestige of nationalised industry unionism, believing that they have a better right to run an airline than the management of the shareholders and the public, then it's a crying shame. 
We, we know that the government's very keen to uh, have this dispute settled with the general election looming and so forth. Is there anything more than the ministers could do to, to get this dispute over and done with? Well, it is a private sector dispute, although British Airways is the last vestige of nationalised industry in Britain. Nevertheless, it is a private company. This is on the UK Stock Exchange. And this is something between a group of organised labour and a management of a public company. And I think it's right the politicians have a view, but it's not their business. I have to say one thing which I, I do find is utterly unacceptable. I don't want the government of my country, whatever party it is, I'm a crossbench peer. I speak from independence. But it is not right that the Prime Minister of our country and two of his ministers belong to a trade union. We expect our government ministers to be utterly independent and governing for the whole country. And it's not acceptable that the Prime Minister of this country, or indeed any of his ministers, whether he's Labour, Tory or Liberal, belongs to any vested interest, be it a business, a charity, a lobby group or a trade union. Digby Jones. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Chris Wade, Phil Maynard and Andy Duckworth. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.